Join the conversation. You're with Kate Talk. It is 10 minutes after 9 o'clock and joining me now is the Naked Scientist, Dr. Chris Smith, who will answer all your science questions, even the wacky ones. Good morning, Chris. Hello, Saskia. Good morning. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, actually. I mean, we're in a pretty buoyant mood here in the UK because, of course, uh, nearly one person in three has had their first dose of vaccine against uh, coronavirus now, which is an amazing achievement, very, very good reason to be enthusiastic. But there's also some great data that's come out this week. There was a study from Scotland, and there's also a study from England. And what these studies together show is that these vaccines protect the vulnerable, so people who are at the highest end of the age bracket, by about 85 90%. And the other study shows that they also stop people catching the infection asymptomatically. So putting this together, we've got evidence now that people very quickly, you know, within a couple of weeks of being vaccinated, are already not passing on the infection, because if you can't catch it, you can't pass it on, but also people who are really vulnerable who previously might have become casualties of the infection have been protected and that gives us enormous confidence as we go forward now because the the next plan is to as uh, politicians dub it step back from the lockdown gradually so we've we've had a roadmap outlined by the prime minister about how we're going to get ourselves out of the mess we're in and then basically start taxing us all out of existence which is probably their next uh, part on the agenda <laughs> We do have a question um, from Ray. Uh, Ray has a call on the line, and apparently it's a Quark Planet's follow-up question from last week. Go ahead, Ray. Morning, Suska. Thank you. And hi, Chris. Hi, Ray. Uh, I trust you did, you did receive my uh, info about the site that you could connect with. I, I did find a, a bit more information. I, I watched the video. You, you're, you sent me something about strange That's lits, right. and strange lits are yes. these um, nefarious quarks. And, yeah, this is That's theoretical. Right. This is very much a theoretical thing. Um, but uh, at the moment, um, it, it remains speculative. And as one person who said to me as a theoretician, you've got to be really careful of theories because, you know, you can, you can prove that one is, is naught in, in, in maths. You can prove anything with maths. Mm. So you've got to be very careful. Um, oh, I, do un- I do understand a little yeah, bit more yeah. about this now. The, the bottom line is that there are quarks which make up the particles that make up atoms. And the quarks that we see in nature are what are called an up-and-down quark. But there are also flavours of quarks, which are called uh, strange and charm quarks and top and bottom quarks. And they're different masses and they have different energies compared to the uh, up-and-down quarks that we find. But you never normally see these other flavours of quark in nature. We know that we can make them. We yeah. know that they can exist when we smash atoms to pieces in particle accelerators, for example, but they decay rapidly and don't seem to do anything. But what is being proposed in the theory that uh, you uh, sent me the details of is that in very extreme conditions, and that would be, for instance, inside a neutron star, and for people not in the know, a neutron star is what happens when an intermediate or a smaller star ends its life and it's not big enough to blow itself to smithereens in a supernova but instead it collapses down into a neutron star and this is where you have the size of a star compressed into something that's about the size of a city so you've got all the mass of a star in a very compact part of space and the physics is so extreme in there that basically you compress everything together until you get this pool of neutrons but what they're saying is that it's also possible under these extreme conditions to 
produce these strange quarks and these can combine in such a way to make a, an entity called a strange lit and a strange lit is a bit like a highly religious cult where uh, it, it'll go around converting and subverting others into joining the cult and so it basically inflicts its opinion on any other matter that it meets and turns the other matter into more strange yeah. matter and the the idea is this could poison the universe you know if it's spread through the universe it could interact with other matter and convert the normal matter into strange lits and you know the more people you convert the more people you've got to go and convert others that there's a number of um of of ideas around that it's just a theory we we can't test this directly at the moment we don't have any evidence for this directly but obviously it's a slightly worrying one because it means you you could potentially slowly turn turn all the matter into this strange matter but at the moment sure. we, we we don't have any evidence that is the case and uh, we are we are obviously all cards are on the table but um at the moment we're we're happy we're not going to turn into strange things anytime soon we're strange enough already <laughs> i would agree I, uh, Chris, thank you for that. And I think Hollywood scenarios are going to grab hold of that theory and turn it into one of those sci-fi disaster movies. Eh? Almost certainly. Yeah, you should you should get in on the act fast and write one before they do. <laughs> right. Thank, thank you. you so thank much, you. Ray. Fascinating discussion, Chris. We've also got a voice note here that we want to play for you. Good morning, Louis. Uh, um, a question for the naked scientist. Um, I personally subscribe to the theory of evolution, but one thing that I've wondered about often is, is there any reason why all the living organisms on Earth have um, evolved with an element of age to them? It's interesting for me that, that, that organisms are born or created and then they, there's this element of age through them as they um, grow and and finish their life cycle as we know them um are there any organisms on earth where age perhaps is not present or prevalent like it is like we know it thanks and can we bottle it and <laughs> wouldn't wouldn't we just love that yeah uh, fountain of youth hello louis the answer is that things don't age on purpose or with very rare examples do they age on purpose things age because of an accident or because they can't help it there's a theory of aging which is called the disposable soma theory which is that basically you invest as little maintenance in your body as it takes so that you can maximize the amount of energy you put into making sure there's more of you in future so in other words you use as much energy as you can to reproduce and you use the minimum energy you can to devote to maintaining yourself why is that helpful because any organism is going to be successful if it makes sure that there are more of it after it's been on Earth than before it was on Earth. Why do I say that? Because at the end of the day, if you don't strive to maximise your numbers, then it's very likely that someone else will and you will die out. So if you're a plant, if you grow too slowly, if you reproduce too slowly, you will be at an advantage compared to equivalent species that are unconstrained. So it's an evolutionary arms race going on out there that, that encourages species to breed and maximise their opportunities to make as many of themselves when they can. And then you say, well, why doesn't that lead to the planet being overrun? Well, we're doing a pretty good job of it right now, overrunning the planet. But the answer is that there is a complex ecosystem out there where everything is someone else's dinner. And there are processes to return to the environment the raw materials. 
And so as a result, if you do end up with, I don't know, let's say rabbits become very successful this year and you get billions of rabbits, then things that eat rabbits, like foxes, are going to increase their numbers in an extraordinary way because they've suddenly got an all-you-can-eat buffet to get their teeth into. So things invest as much as they can in reproduction because what they want to pass on is their genetic information and it's the genes that are the powerful thing. And the genes use the body as their vehicle to get where they're going. And that's why we're only here for a short time. But some things do grow more slowly. There are trees in New Zealand, for example, that grow and take thousands of years to get to maturity. Same in, uh, in, in America, California, with the, the redwoods there. There are fish in the sea like sharks that live for hundreds of years. People have used carbon dating to date the eyeballs of certain species of shark in the ocean and they're 500 years old routinely. There are some mammals that live for a really long time as well. There are whales swimming around out there that people have found harpoon tips where people have tried to catch the whales from 100, 100 plus years ago and the whales are still very much here in evidence. So there, there are short-lived creatures, there are long-lived creatures, but all of them are united by the fact that they need to reproduce to ensure the survival of their species in the long run and they and their body is, is investing as much as it can in reproduction and the minimum in maintenance. So we all clap out eventually, unfortunately. So, so then the, the short answer is there aren't any that actually just, you know, live forever. Uh, no, there, there are very few species in, in plants, that do. In, in, in plant, plants, plants are very long-lived. And seagrasses, there are some seagrasses which have been on Earth for thousands and thousands of years because they basically keep on reproducing and spreading themselves. So they're not. it's a bit like the broom that has had 50 million new heads and 20 million new handles. Is it the same broom? Well, not really, because it's reproduced and, and spread and, and been replaced mm. with different bits all over, the, all over the time. But it's the same original species that caused the broom. So it's not, it's a, you, know, you can't really say it's been here for all that time. Yes. We are chatting to the Naked Scientist, Dr. Chris Smith, who's answering all your science questions. I've gone down a rabbit hole lately, Chris, because of flat earth theory. And at first, I just thought, oh, man, these are just a bunch of crazy people. But then I actually started reading um, because there's some really serious flat earthers out there. I'd love to know your take on whether flat earth theory is even plausible. No. Next question. <laughs> I love that. All right. We've got a caller on the line, Salwin from Fishhook. <laughs> that was quick. Oh, no, I see Salwin's disappeared. Okay, so you say completely just no. No. I mean, I've... I've I, I, spoke to someone else earlier in the week and, and pointed out when people were asking how high do you have to go to see the Earth is round. A couple of summers ago, we sent a balloon to the edge of space. It was a, a naked scientist space balloon, we called it. And we actually broadcast people's screams. There are some screams from South Africa that we sent into, into near space. <laughs> uh, the idea being to test the theory, can anyone hear you scream in space? And yes. we had a couple of mobile phones also up there in our container that we sent up below this balloon. And by the time we got to about 33 kilometres above the Earth, you could see the most beautiful curvature, the blackness of space, and then the blueness of the atmosphere where the light was bouncing off below. And, and it was absolutely stunning. So just as high as you know, 30 kilometres, which is about a third of the way to where we say the line is drawn to where the space mm. starts and the atmosphere ends, you could see the most beautiful curve there. And uh, the Earth is, is most certainly round. <laughs> All right, we've got Salwin on the line now from Fishuk. Salwin, go ahead and ask your question. Thank you. Hi, Chris. Chris, why is South Africa not using the AstraZeneca vaccine? Because, I mean, it's 80% efficient, 
the the the, the uh, whatever it's ninety five percent efficient. So rather we're going to have people with no immunity rather than having eighty percent immunity. Apparently there's some small tested bits, but I don't understand it. Do you, can you explain it? Uh, we're all baffled, quite frankly, and we're baffled for a number of reasons. One reason put forward is that there is some evidence that the variant that emerged in South Africa and spread across the country is is less susceptible to the protection conferred by vaccination and also potentially vaccination from the AstraZeneca vaccine. But the study that you're referring to done at the University of the Vortisrand looked at a very small number of people and by that we mean, you know, sub a couple of thousand and the average age of a study subject was 31 and they couldn't therefore test whether or not it protected against severe disease because no one in their study got severe disease. And what we're learning about these vaccines is that, yes, some people do slip through the net and they do still catch the virus when they are vaccinated. And and that's always been the fact with vaccines. But what they almost certainly seem to do is to convert what would have been a lethal infection into a non-lethal infection. So in other words, you're far better off, variant or no variant, getting vaccinated than not getting vaccinated. And these vaccines are really very good. When you compare them to what we would happily and joyfully hold our arm out for a flu jab in terms of effectiveness, they're much better than a flu jab in terms of their performance at preventing the infection or even blocking the symptoms of the infection. So many people, myself included, were mystified by South Africa's stance and also we were dismayed by the fact that there are people all over the world who are crying out to get access to vaccines. And uh, South Africa was sitting on a significant job lot of vaccine that has an expiry date on it. I don't know what has happened or transpired with those vaccines subsequently, but I do hope that they're being used. And if not in South Africa, then in some other needy part of the world so that they're not wasted before they expire. But no, we're all of the opinion that it's a rather strange stance to have taken. We don't know why they've taken that stance. Maybe there's more data that have not been passed on into the public domain. Perhaps that's the reason or perhaps something else is at play and people just um, have made a bad call. We don't know, but we do hope it will be fixed soon. Do you think there is action happening that, you know, they either will be used or will be used elsewhere? I'm sure that they could be used elsewhere. I hope that they will be used elsewhere. I hope, first and foremost, that they'll be used in South Africa because um, that's where there's a lot of needy people. The vaccines are already there on the ground and they could start going into people. And I'm and I'm convinced that this will actually help uh, to, to prevent people getting severe disease. If they have these vaccines, you may still catch one of these variants, but I I think that they will probably convert what would otherwise be very serious lethal disease into non-lethal disease, and and that would be a good thing. Thank you so much, Solwyn. Um, And thanks, Chris. Um, Chris, on the WhatsApp line, uh, it says a frivolous question. Why do the last couple of pieces of ice in your glass stick to the bottom when your drink is finished? <laughs> well, it depends on how long the ice has been in the drink, but the the ice could be extremely cold. Water freezes at about naught. The ice is going to therefore be pulling water onto its surface while it remains below zero and therefore freezing itself to anything that touches it. It's Uh why if you take an ice cube out of the ice cube tray and hold it on your tongue, which you shouldn't do because it's painful, because the ice will freeze the water on your tongue onto the ice cube and stick it to your tongue. 
So if the ice has enough contact with the bottom of the glass and the ice is cold enough, then it could freeze itself onto the glass because it will freeze itself to the water that's there uh, or, or to the other ice cubes next door. Hence that lovely scene from Dumb and Dumber where the guy gets his tongue stuck to the ski lift. Exactly right. Uh, never, <laughs> never lick a metal pole when you go skiing or, or never, never stick your, your tongue on the fridge door or something because or the freezer door because you could stick. And, and it's very painful to get it off. Now, people will say, hang on a minute, isn't, isn't ice at naught? And the answer is no, ice is not at naught. Ice can be at whatever uh-huh. temperature you make it below zero when you cool it down. Uh-huh. But when you put it into, say, a drink then the temperature of the ice will rise to naught, but then it won't go any higher until all of the ice has melted. And this is called a phase change. So in other words, the the ice puts all the energy that it's pulling out of the drink into melting itself and not allowing the temperature of the ice to rise above naught until all the ice is gone. And that, that is the phase change. And that's why you can have ice when you finish your drink quickly. If you were to really quickly slurp down the drink, the ice could be at lower than zero, and therefore has the potential to freeze any water that it comes into contact with temporarily nearby. Fascinating. All right, I think we've got time for one more question on the WhatsApp line. Um, how do you get rid of a gecko infestation? <laughs> I have no idea. And I hope you're not going to kill um, them because I, I really love them. And I think they, they're so they cute. All the hojas. Yeah, I, I love Me them. Too. They're really cute. They're really, really cool to watch because you can see how they sneak up on flies and things. If you just sit really still and watch them, you'll see them stalking and they'll find a fly and they, they'll keep an eye on it for a while and then they just stick their tongue out and grab it they're they're really cute i love geckos but i've no idea how you would get rid of an infestation of them get rid of all the flies and they'll go where the food is is normally the way to get rid of or make any animal move because they'll they'll go where where lunch is and where there's a good place to hide so give them a place to hide and give them something to eat and they'll they'll probably leave i keep them around because i don't like the spiders and all the all the hohos so i i I try to encourage them i mean they're not going to harm you and and they're they're cute so what's not to like i'd 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 have the geckos and let them eat the insects so you get fewer insect infestations uh you know trade a a gecko infestation for an insect infestation you're with cape talk it is 31 minutes after 9 o'clock and you're listening to Cape Talk. My name is Saskia Falcon, super sub for Kino Cummings today, and we are chatting to the naked scientist, Dr. Chris Smith. In fact, we're wrapping up with Dr. Chris Smith. We've just got one voice note, Chris, that we'd like to, to play for you. Please, please, could you explain the PCR tests and the fact that they are so inaccurate when they're run too many times or something like that. I'd just like to really understand that more. Thank you. PCR stands for polymerase chain reaction. This was a technique that won the scientist Carrie Mullis the Nobel Prize. He's died now, he died a couple of years ago, but basically the way it works and the insight that he had to invent it, he told me actually because I interviewed him, uh, he had this insight driving up to his cabin where he was going to spend the weekend and he had to stop his car in the middle of a windy mountain road just to write down what he'd suddenly seen as a flash of inspiration in front of his eyes before it vanished from his mind. And he realised, because of work he'd been doing, making short pieces of genetic information in the laboratory, was if you have a a chunk of genetic information, DNA in other words, and you have two smaller chunks, which are the mirror image of the, the information on that piece of DNA... So you've got a long piece, which is the thing you're interested in, and then two little pieces which flank an area that you're interested in. So there's a sequence that 
will stick onto the DNA because it's the mirror image of it. What you can do is add the body's natural enzymes that copy genetic information and they will go backwards and forwards a bit like the uh, a textile weaving mill and they will actually weave multiple copies of the piece of genetic information between those two short sequences and that's called amplifying a section of DNA and when we do this test in the laboratory to detect diseases what we do is take a swab from a person for example we extract the genetic information that's in the swab which will include some human DNA some bacterial DNA and if an virus or another infection is there some of the viral information and then we extract the just the genetic information to clean it up add in some short pieces of artificial DNA that are, that are like those flanking sequences that Carrie Mullis uh, envisaged and the enzyme that does the copying and we make millions and millions of copies of the genetic information between those two and then we use what's called a probe sequence which is another piece of genetic information that is coloured and, and when it docks with the, the thing that's being made it makes a colour and so once you've made enough of the thing that you're looking for you get enough of a colour change that the machine can see that colour change and it says aha this is this sequence is in there therefore this person is infected with or, or we can detect this part of the, the virus or whatever now what's being referred to in terms of the number of, of uh, cycles and so on the PCR test is an excellent diagnostic tool and is extremely accurate and it is the best diagnostic tool that we have to use in a range of different contexts and settings and it's used all over the world for that reason this is not a new thing just for coronavirus we, we've been using this for 15 years yeah. or more in the laboratory to make these diagnostics but what happens with any kind of test no test is perfect but with PCR tests because they're so sensitive they're very easy to contaminate so if uh, you're doing the work in a laboratory and you accidentally because you've made you know other diagnoses in that laboratory you, you could have some of the thing that's being copied knocking around and that can contaminate your mixture and that could give a false positive and also if you run these tests for long enough and you keep on asking it to copy genetic information eventually the chemistry can begin to break down and you just produce colors and light that that has come f because it, the, the chemicals are breaking down not because you're making more genetic information so there's a sweet spot up to a certain number of copies where it's very very reliable and beyond that point, it becomes a bit less reliable. So we tend to put most of our confidence on making a, up to a certain number of copies, and we tend to disregard any any positives after that number of copies. And it's, it's called a CT value, or uh, how many cycles the machine has gone through of making copies before we, we basically say it's a negative reaction. But otherwise, it is an excellent test. And I know there's been some misinformation going around on the internet about this, but um, the PCR diagnostic tool is fantastic and it's very very quick it means that we get diagnoses on people usually with extremely high accuracy and usually very rapidly which makes a big yes. difference medically and is it's possible you said to get a false negative is it possible to get a false positive with a pcr yeah and that's exactly what's being referred to here because if right. you keep on making the copies eventually because you're basically subjecting the things that are in the pcr reaction to changes in temperature changes in the chemical conditions eventually you get false positives in some mm. cases because the chemistry that's going on in there begins to break down as in molecules start to fall apart and they start to make spurious signals 
that the machine picks up and it can't tell the difference between a spurious signal and a real signal. But that does tend to happen more much later on in the PCR reaction. In other words, once you've gone through lots and lots of these copying cycles. So if you say, well, I'm not going to go beyond a certain number of copying cycles because I'll start to get false positives, you minimise the chance of that happening. Right. And then our last voice note that we've got in. Yeah, interesting fact about geckos, domestic cats are killing them off in very large numbers, which are resulting in more unlikable insects in the city of Cape Town. As I know it, um, approximately 5 million geckos are killed a year just in the Cape Town metropole by cats. So I prefer to get rid of the cats and the geckos, quite frankly. Cheers, all in Dumble. I do not think I can deal with geckos going extinct on this Friday. But Paul makes a very good point because cats do have a lot to answer for. I know people love their pets and they they love these fluffy things. Uh, I'm not a cat person, but I'm a dog person. And people tend to fall into two halves, don't they? There's dog people and cat people. And people say, I'm on the fence. I'm on the fence. Are are you? Um, My wife's got a couple of cats. They're horrible things. I really really don't like them. Um, dogs, Dogs have owners and dogs are your friend cats have staff and and expect us to traipse around after them and and I, I don't know i've never really bonded with cats but they they are a pain they do tend to demolish the local wildlife because it's in their instinct i mean it's not their fault that they they basically exactly. have evolved to catch stuff and they will catch anything for fun that they can researchers at uh, one of the uk universities last week published a study where they found actually that if you play with your cat for as little as five minutes per day and you increase its diet so it's got more protein in it, actually they get a very dramatic reduction in the amount of uh, cat stalking and hunting, things like birds. They, they really cut down that behaviour. So if your cat's doing that, it's basically entertaining itself. So it's bored right. and also hungry potentially. So enrich your cat's diet, a bit more meat, and spend more time playing with it, and it will spend less time going and catching birds. Chris, I hope all the cats are listening so that they can send out a memo immediately to all of their staff to say, please, play with me more, <laughs> play with me more. and feed me more protein. <laughs> Chris, thank you so That's much. Right. It's been absolutely wonderful, as Take usual. Care. Bye, Saskia. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. Als Verteidiger müssen Sie Angriffe von Cyberkriminellen jederzeit erfolgreich beenden. Cyber Reason kehrt den Vorteil des Angreifers um. Von Endpoints und überall.